0: Hey guys, and welcome back to the SkullCast for episode 110. I am your host, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hey everyone. Grail. Hello. And nobody else. We are just about to finish up 2020. I think that places us at four episodes, four podcasts for a year. That's, that's, it's pretty bad is what it is. That's kind of all due to me, but also kind of due to me, you're not really you know, pumping it out much this year. That's too bad. But um, we're going to end on a bang with the end of volume 23. We're back for the reread to finish up the volume. There is no Berserk news that I know of. Uh, We're done talking about the cakes. We're done talking about the giant Zod hand. I don't (laughs) know if anything else is happening. Was it website down? oh that's not an update that's a lack of yeah sure i'm just saying (laughs) sure yeah the uh hoxton show's main site for young animal is down along with any other you know sister pages associated with that and the event page is also down is that right yes yeah wow it's just sloppy 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 but Mm. whatever i don't think it indicates anything other than they have bad web management uh person basically uh, we'll move on to it. Volume 23, the second half of this, uh, I actually like how neatly this volume is segmented between Guts and Griffith's perspectives. And we always refer to that as Guts and Griffith's perspectives. But what this episode makes pretty clear, and future episodes as well, is that it's not really Griffith's perspective, it's other people's perspective of Griffith's actions. So, like, Mira is making this very intentional uh, decision to distance readers from Griffith, or at least to not get inside his head, and it becomes more evident as it proceeds that Mule and his perspective on Griffith is not the anomalous episode; it's actually the norm for us to be kept at arm's distance from Griffith. You know, when mm-hmm. he when we see him, it is him doing heroic things, but we don't really get introspection into him uh, at all, really. Uh, and I remember reading this section as uh, when episodes were coming out. And being a little disappointed because I was expecting that to happen, you know, any episode now, we're going to have the Inside Griffith's Head episode. And, boy, that just never happened at all. You've been uh, waiting for
1: a long time.
0: I'm still waiting. No, I've given up long ago. It's clear, pretty clear what Miura is doing, you know. Right. Because Griffith is a demigod, basically. He's distant from humans. And so Miura has chose to relate him to us in a way that's very uh, otherworldly, supernatural, above humanity still beats cake though. Right. But yes, uh, not really a human anymore. And that's how he's related to us. So this episode that I'm going to start reading in a second, uh, is really introducing, uh, a new perspective character, which is mule wolf flame. And he is the, uh, uh, leader or actually the retainer, I guess. or the inheritor of the wolf flame family and Lumius is the name of the thief in, in Southern Midland, which is the opening pages set that up for us. Uh, I don't think there's too much that's special about Mule uh, himself. I mean, he's uh, kind of a firebrand character. He gets angered pretty quickly. He's young, right? He has a lot to prove to himself. He's very spirited. Um, But I really do think he's introduced, really, uh, as as kind of an outsider character. He's not someone close in the ranks to Griffith. He's not an established hero character or, uh, or even an inhuman warrior like the apostles are. So he grants the audience that outsider's perspective. He's there to be able to see events as they coalesce around Griffith. So he's there basically as the reader's witness as all these new things are happening. So he's kind of a vessel for the readers to experience these things as if they are new. Mm, right. Um. I'll go ahead and get started. Episode 191 is Reunion in the Wilderness. Now, as you guys know, we ended the last podcast mid-episode because the episode itself is segmented between Guts and Griffith's side. So I only get a little half episode here. So um it starts in Lumius in the southern Midland. And as you can see, it's kind of a farmland. There the soldiers, the Kushan soldiers are riding over farming territory or farm territory, the land previously tilled, uh, but now it's just used for war. That's where the war is happening. Um, and there are some the leftovers of the Lumius Castle are hiding from the Kushans, who are now plundering what's left of their their castle. And uh, Mule wants to strike, but one of his retainers advises him to wait because there's a resistance force out there that's been freeing uh, various Kushan-held territories. And what's interesting is we have this really cool shot of Griffith kind of heroically riding into battle with the flags waving in this interesting angle. I like that shot a lot. Uh, But what's cool about this is that the mere mention of Griffith being this rebellious force that's undermining the authority that Kushans gives the men hope. And it's right then that the Kushans start attacking uh, an incoming party of, uh, you know, Lumia's people. And so that's when Mule says, we can't hold back any longer, even if it's, you know, a, fo- a folly we'll attack. So he launches an assault, even though it doesn't seem like it'd be advisable in this scenario, but it goes forward anyway. And the episode ends right as the clash begins. And Griffith is watching from uh, a far distant hill. And he's lit very interestingly that we just see a silhouette at first. We don't see any of his facial characteristics. We just see the way the armor is lit up by the sun, the shadows that are cast by the sun. It just—it's just the the falcon motifs of the armor. I like that. It's very inhuman. It's very statuesque. It's not a very personal image, but it's very symbolic of him. Right. Like the that way that framed. armor
1: could might as well be empty if we didn't know better.
0: Totally. It's cool. It's kind of foreboding, but it's yeah. also—it's just cool looking. Yeah. Really. It's reminiscent of uh, Femto as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime I see that Falcon mask now, the way the way the silhouette is lit, you can't help but think I think that's intentional. I don't think you can help but think about Femto, because that mask means more than just Griffith at this point in the story. Yeah,
1: it's
2: very right. symbolic, like you said.
0: What's this episode um it reveals the impact of the Kushan invasion. Uh we've been hearing about this a lot. We've seen it in volume seventeen when they crested the hill and right outside the doorstep of Wyndham when we first really heard about it. And um we haven't really seen an attack like this before, or the actual impact of it. We've seen them outside of Albion. We knew they were out there, and we knew that they were invading uh, forces like shit. But now we're seeing how this actually affects an individual fief, which is Lumius. Uh, so that's interesting to have that, uh, and also the fact that um, there are conflicting stories. We get a little bit introspection about how commoners view Griffith. You know, he's the hero of the Hundred Years' War. But there's also some scuttlebutt about if he survived uh, imprisonment or not. You know, there's one rumor that he, you know, quite rightly uh, was arrested and arrested for treason, and then that he died in prison, which we know wasn't true. But there's another rumor that said that he was rescued by his men and escaped the capital. So I like that there are conflicting stories. It's really the king's version of events, and then there's the truth that also got out. So I like that. That's kind of giving them hope despite the overwhelming odds. Mm. What do you guys think? Um, one of the things
2: uh, I think is noticeable is that uh, we we get a rare geographical information in this episode is that Lumias is situated in Southern Midland, so it's just a small detail, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Um, another thing I like is how it's established that Mule is from a very small. Uh, feel, uh territory and from one of the lower noble families. You know they mention that his family is not even allowed in the royal castle, and so that dialogue where, where his men argue that he's got no obligation to fight given the situation. I think is very down to earth, and it's a way to set things up and establish both the dire situation of the kingdom. As well as Mule's character, where seeing his uh, subjects being rounded up, he just can't help but jump into battle, even though he knows they've got no chance. So I think it's a very effective way in a few pages and with a small dialogue to set up, uh, to set everything up.
1: Right. I think it helps the reader really put their, put themselves in, in Mule's shoes and really root for the guy. And. Even now, when we're so far forward in the story, and we are in Falconia, and every time I see Mule, I'm like, "Oh yeah, Mule's a cool guy." He's, you know, it it gives me faith that you know when things get farther in the story, we're going to get more from Mule's perspective and see how he is going to react to more revelations about Griffith. Hopefully, mm-hmm.
0: and like, uh- yeah, he's, he's he's heroic in this scene, and I think it shows that he, you know, has a good heart despite being allied with a demon, uh, you know, he has a good heart. And right. that's contrasted with the nobles that we see in Vertanis, who are like just scrambling for some kind of, uh, you know, possible resistance, doing everything they can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's quite a bit different. Mm.
2: And uh, like you said, Walter, it's also um, interesting to have his perspective as an everyman uh, into what we get to see later on. You know, Griffith's uh, fantastical side of things because he himself is unknown to us uh, deliberately on Mira's part. The boss, because it would break up the magic a little bit, and also because he's actually uh, a demon lord or, or whatever. So if we actually got to see his own perspective, it would probably not be very heroic or legendary or anything <laughs> like that.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's just satisfying a curiosity about this the mind that someone like that would have. I guess that's whats yeah. I've always kind of wanted to it, know more about. Well, I think
2: we'll get to see that much later on. But, uh, yeah, I like that we get to see the legend from someone that's close to it, but not, you know, who's just a regular guy. So he's mm-hmm. odd by the... You know, if it was just from Vozod's perspective, it's the same thing. It's just he's odd. I mean, you know, seeing people die, eh, whatever. Seeing Griffiths, yeah, you know... What's it, what's it all about? So, having that perspective of a lambda guy, uh, that's, that's what makes it interesting as well to see all these fantastical characters from the point of view of a regular dude. Um, right. A small thing I noticed um, in this episode is that they refer to Griffiths by his old uh, Midlandian title, which is uh, that of a count. So, mm-hmm. I found that interesting. It goes along with the whole thing, where they don't really know uh, what what happened to him, whether he died in prison or lot. Uh, they, they're still um, thinking of him as what he used to be, you know, three years ago. So I found that interesting.
0: Yeah, because he was raised general, be the White
2: Phoenix. Well, right. He actually, so he was meant to be uh, to get the title of general the day after, and the. Oh, that's right. The queen died. Yeah, it and never it happened. Postponed huh?
0: it. That's right. I forgot they postponed it. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And uh, and it's the same way that um, his lieutenants did not get to be knighted because uh, right. that happened. So it was postponed. And then he was caught in uh, Charles' uh, bedchambers. And then he got to jail. So he never got promoted to that title of White Phoenix General.
0: Honestly, man, he just couldn't keep it in his pants. It's like a week longer. <laughs> and his, his, you know, everyone would have been knighted. <laughs> Yeah, Jeez. one would Some say boss. it's a- cause and effect. Relating to that, though, the past, this episode gives us one of the extremely rare uh, timeline uh, milestones. It actually says three years ago is when Griffith was imprisoned. So, I mean, if you do the math, it makes sense because he would have been imprisoned, you know, a year before the events of the eclipse. We knew a year or so had passed during the Black Swordsman arc and then a year after black swordsman up until the conviction arc 2 years later really since the eclipse so that all adds up to 3 years i don't think that's you know monumental but it's very rare for mira to give us explicit time ranges right. in fact i had we had to pry them out of his hands <laughs> in the 2009 interview when we asked him how much time has passed and he gave us a general uh timeline but it matches up with this one and from my it, it was pretty it was- vague still yep yep indeed that is all I had for this one. Aziel, you want know, to take it over for 192?
2: Certainly. So um, the episode opens with Mule and his men coming down onto the Cushions. Uh, they're faced with war slaves, and it's revealed that the strategy uh, of taking slaves from the enemy and forcing them into battle uh, has allowed the Kushan armies to conquer vast wealth of land at little to no cost, their ranks only growing bigger over time. Mule's numbers are already thinned and about to get crushed by cavalry when the horse and riders get headshot by Irvine, who Mule can't even see because he's on a hill several kilometers away. As the archers keep up their work, Locus and his men enter the fray and push back the Kushan cavalry by impelling soldiers three at a time. Meanwhile, Zor approaches from the left flank with his own men and disrupts the counterattack. And finally, Grumbeld and the other giants show themselves and achieve. Uh, uh, to destabilize the cushions. and as their general sits there perplexed, he sees oncoming riders bearing the flag of the Band of the Falcon, which is heard has been liberating territories in Midland. So, what's interesting uh, with this episode is that it establishes a, a bunch of things. The first is that it gives background on the Kushan military and some of their tactics, uh, which has made them formidable. But it also sees the introduction of the last of Griffith's uh, Apostle Generals, which is Irvine, the blind archer. He's the only one who is not introduced in volume 22 when the Apostles first joined Griffiths in Shet. Uh, obviously, I absolutely love his intro and his style in general, you know, shooting five arrows at once and uh, them having so much power, they actually decapitate their targets. And like Locus, and one could argue Rakshas, He's strongly tied to his gear, and specifically his bow, which has an eye and is essentially an extension of himself. But beyond our this also shows us how each of the noteworthy apostles at Griffith's side have been promoted to leadership positions, each leading other apostles with a similar fighting style in battle. They're all remarkable, but I especially like uh, those guys, who are kind of the wild bunch. Um, and a, a parallel could almost be made between them and Guts' former raiding squad in the original Band of the Falcon. I feel like throughout this episode, which is very visual, there's an emphasis on how formidable all of them are, uh, with each having their cool opening shots, so there's obviously Irvine's supersonic arrows, then we see Locust screwing uh, riders three at a the time, there's Zod's famous lion roar that paralyzes horses in fear, <laughs> And Grumble's cannon, and the episode ends, of course, with these three burly guys in the midst of slaughter, and uh, notably Grumble with like three soldiers hanging on his armor. So overall, um, a very, very visual episode, and you know, which shows these apostles as extremely badass from the perspective, again, of a standard human, which is in this case Boss Mule and the Christian General. What do you guys think?
0: I like how each of them have a moment to shine, uh, which you've already said, but they, their strengths and their specialties are put on display and they have the specialized, uh, what's the word C- cordon or sections of the, of the, the force. And so it strikes you as a highly organized, but powerful small force. So they can do a lot of damage in a very short amount of time. And they're also very uh, maneuverable because they're so small. So, as long as they're strategically deployed, they're basically unstoppable. Is what happens here. You get a sense of the scale of this attack uh, in the next episode, but it's like a twenty to one uh, in terms of you know, who was, you know, their force versus the other. So
1: right, it's crazy, and and they're really setting the stage for Griffith to shine. Like they are taking out all these guys so quickly that probably people people can barely. Uh, you know, take in that information and then before you know it, Griffith sweeps in with his guys and he's very much the face of the operation and making it look very heroic. So I thought that was interesting.
2: Yeah, exactly. They, they do the heavy work. Griffith comes in and sweeps in the reward, you know?
1: Right.
0: There's also a lot of attention to detail here with the armors, particularly in Locust's Lancer division. They're, they're apostle forms. Kind of subtly are displayed on their armor, even their horse armor. Uh, you can see what they might have looked like as apostles or might look like as apostles kind of etched into their armor. There's one that has like almost a Batman symbol on it. And I almost – I wondered, have we seen a bat a – po- I don't remember a bat apostle. I'm sure Apostle Bob could tell me, but I don't remember any bat mm-hmm. apostle. Yeah, um, But anyway, mm. it's all over his armor.
2: Yeah, it's true. I actually wonder if we've seen that guy before. We probably see him get, uh, you know, lightning bolts right. uh, in Volume 27. Yeah. Uh, that would yeah. be a good one to check. because We'll
1: all- have to keep an eye out for him.
2: Yeah, what, what's pretty incredible with Mirai is that all of these guys, like they are reoccurring. Um, a bunch of them are in there as early as the Eclipse, in the Apostle Forms. And those who are introduced in this episode, we see them again and again. Like, for example, the guys who are with Zod, we see them uh, at Flora's mansion. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we see them die, some of them. We see uh, Zod uh, crush the skull of the boar guy. So uh, it's it's pretty interesting to have that uh, level of uh, attention to detail on Muras part, you know, where he's not just drawing new ones and, you know, just forgetting about them. He just keeps them in. And tries to have a, a thread throughout all these events with the same same characters. So
1: that's something that I've always appreciated a lot. You know, I'm sure that he's got books and books of character uh, drawings and character designs that he's kept consistent, and that must be a huge amount of work.
2: Yeah, for sure. To remember, I mean, when, when it's stuff you've drawn twenty years ago, to remember, oh yeah, I did that one. I gotta, you know, bring it back. Uh, yeah, and not just mess it up. Yeah, it's a, it probably demands a um, how to say a very strict work ethic. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I think this is the first appearance of Irvine. I think you mentioned that Azil, but uh, yeah, his character design. I really like his character design. I I don't know what it is about. I guess it's the hat, really. The lack of showing. It's his all face. about that hat. He just looks really <laughs> stylish, is what I'm trying to say. I guess. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, he's awesome.
0: So there's a, the hat, of
2: course, is very unique and very badass. And I, I'm, I think it's uh, probably a design Mirabriam made up. We don't see, he's also got clothes covering his, uh, the size of his face. We don't see his ears. Uh, and obviously there's the whole blind thing. So mm-hmm. in this episode, it's not entirely clear, but he seems to be blind because his eyes are, you know, shadowed. But we see that the bow itself has got these big eyes that's, uh, how to say, you know, almost dilates at, as he fires. So the implication is pretty clear that he can see through his bow. The bow is an extension of himself. The bow is very cool. I mean, it's obviously, uh. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, it's an apostle bow, clearly. But, uh, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's very cool. And obviously, I mean, he's firing five arrows at once. And as you'll, may, as you'll notice, the other apostles with him, they shoot upwards in an arc like you know, archers would do but he doesn't he shoots almost horizontally and <laughs> because <laughs> he has so much power it's like it's like he's firing i don't know
0: cannon shots it's ridiculous
1: but, but i love it <laughs> that's a really cool it, detail actually i'm glad you brought that up
0: it seems obvious but like i, I never really thought about it before but like, it's cool that there's an eye on the bow and the and the eye looks very monstrous but it's like a scope. It's like a monster scope is what it is. He strapped a monster eye scope onto his bow so he can see very well yeah. from a very far distance. Yeah, because uh, but the,
2: he's shooting from super far away.
0: Yeah, totally. Also, the bowstring itself looks very kind of gross, kind of like sinewy, like a muscle. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it doesn't look like a natural bowstring. It's bow
1: organic string. somehow.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah it's, very, it's like a tendon or something, like you said, yeah. And, um, I mean, we, you know, let's not, maybe not spoil the the thing, but it obviously gets integrated into his Apostle form later on, and it's the same mechanic behind it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very
2: unique. Indeed, and very cool. Uh, I've always wondered whether he just sort of Irvine afterwards, after Shet, or it just didn't make sense for him to be introduced at that time, because it's close quarters within a fortress, so, I've always mm-hmm. wondered did he just, did it not make sense to have him there, or did Muir just come up with him uh, later on?
1: That's an interesting point. I, I can't help but wonder because Irvine is such a mysterious character, maybe he felt like it would be more appropriate to introduce him later so that we don't see him necessarily pledging to Griffith so openly like Locust does. It's, it's kind of a different character trait that he's displaying.
0: Yeah, indeed. The lone hunter. Right, He's a little more sentimental. I mean, as more and more episodes of Irvine get shown, he's a little more sentimental than most of the other Apostle Generals.
1: Right. And he's more uh, friendly with uh, Sonia, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely through that is what how that's conveyed to us, him giving her the jacket, which, you know, obviously uh, washes away all possible sins he could have had as uh, <laughs> someone who sacrificed someone. He's a
1: good guy, guys. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, the other thing we haven't talked about yet in this episode is, you know, the revelation that the Kushan are using their own captured enemy soldiers on the front lines, which is very devious. And I, I'm, sh- I'm sure this has happened a lot. I know that various forces have used slaves in battle, but I, I just don't know the name for it. I was looking up historical examples of this happening. Um, it seems like a ballsy move to me to do that, and I'm sure it was effective. Effective, you have. Arrows at your back, right? You're fighting your own country. You no. don't have much of a choice but to go right. forward. But um, I was quite disrupted by Google who really just insisted that I was looking up Civil War slaves. And no, I wasn't. I was looking up just slaves no. used in war. And Google was like, you mean the Civil War? I, mean, I don't mean the Civil War, actually. Go <laughs> further back, Google. I couldn't find any examples. But I'm sure any student of history could point me with hundreds of this happening. I just was looking for a historical basis for. Them,
2: yeah, I'm sure. yeah, I think it's been done. Honestly, I don't have uh, references off of the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it's been done historically to to use captured enemies and be like, okay, you fight with us, and uh, mm-hmm. after a while, we'll just you know, uh, you'll be integrated you. into our ranks. No, but I mean, even for example, uh, in France, there's something called uh, La Legion Etrangere, the Foreign Legion. And what happens is, uh, is people from any country, usually foreigners, obviously, and not citizens, they come, they enlist, and their past is washed away. So often this would be, uh, criminals, people who had done, you know, who were researched by, by the police or whatever. They're given a new name, uh, they're taught how to speak the language, and they will, you know, fight for the country for a number of years, and after that, they're granting citizenship. And, you know, they have their honor and anything they've done before is washed away. So it's not exactly the same thing, but I think militarily there's a tradition to uh, be able to enlist people in your ranks. They fight for you and they are granted honors based on that. I mean, even in the U.S., I know the U.S. Army, who's always desperate for recruitment, uh, they'll they'll give people... uh, schooling after they fight for three years, that kind of stuff. So there's Mm -hmm. always these kinds of incentives, even in modern day.
0: Sure. Uh, This is like conscription from prisoners, though. This is prisoners of war. I mean, back in the day, (laughs) they weren't going to give you school lessons, you know. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah. It's also just devious because not only is it providing a buffer force for your own forces, it also demoralizes the other troops once yeah, they the- realize they're fighting their own. So it's just nice and nice and gross the whole it's thing. It's a win-win
1: yeah. for them. The psychological aspect mm-hmm. of it.
0: It's pretty smart, and they don't even care. I mean, that's what's interesting
2: uh, with this: is they end up shooting their own guys. They they don't discriminate yeah. because, in any case, they don't mind. So it's um. It's what I said at the beginning, It's it, it gives us uh, insight into how the Kushan army managed to grow so big, conquer so much land without any toll on them. You know, they only grown bigger because each time they conscripted these guys and those who survived uh, remain part of the army. So, it's a, an ever-growing force. It's a very effective tactic and it's explained uh, early on uh, to be a part of why they, they managed to like overwhelm so many countries. And of course, Later on, we learn they've got other tricks up their sleeve, but that explains why their armies are so formidable in and of themselves.
0: Yep, Grail, I hand the torch to you.
1: Um, I am going to flip over here. So we are starting with episode 193. The flag... What was it? Banner of the Flag Sword. The Flag of the Flying Sword or Banner of the Flying Sword. Uh, The episode opens with Griffith in the middle of his campaign to establish himself as a legendary midland hero returning to defeat the Kushan invaders. From Mule's viewpoint as a sort of everyman, um, we are shown exactly how Griffith is the rescuer and messianic figure that the people are looking for in their time of desperation, with a few winks and nods to the dark underbelly of Femto's true intentions. Following from the previous episode, we are watching as Locust, Zod, Grunbild, and the other Apostles slaughter the Kushan army as Griffith bounds toward the head of the Midland Resistance, cutting through the opposition in an arrowhead formation. This is the new Band of the Falcon. Watching from nearby in disbelief and awe, Mule is told by his retainer from the earlier episode that Griffith, uh, there in the silver armor, is Midland's hero uh Mule continuing to play the part of the of the responsible soldier, as is his character that has been established. Um he bounce forward with his men, you know, with the renewed vigor of seeing that leadership in front of him, but he gets a psychic message telling him to watch out and uh he narrowly misses with his men this uh barrage of arrows. Uh he looks over and sees That Sonia, who has come back and is in her decked out armor, is transmitting psychic messages to Mule and presumably other people on the battlefield. But most importantly, she is uh, giving Griffith information about how to get a clear path to the Kushan general, which, of course, he takes in the next few panels. Griffith charges forward. And uh, dispatches the general in a heroic display, promptly beheading him and putting the Kushans in disarray. The amazing feat makes a huge impression on Mule, and the victory for Midland Army is secure. Uh, note: Griffith even removes his removes his helmet for maximum PR optics. As part of the Kushan army retreats into the nearby woods, an unnamed Kushan lord reflects on the distant the, the disastrous battle. And how easily their army was defeated by the Band of the Falcon. He goes on to reference the Bakiraka's report made by Salat and the Tapasa, presumably, and that the Falcon of Light has returned, and that this is no time to toss aside the mutterings of priests as nonsense. Uh, Gives us a little insight into, I guess, what's going on with the Kushan army. Uh, but before the Kushan lord can return to headquarters to report the news, he and his men are am- ambushed by a less PR-friendly section of the Band of the Falcon, Griffith's most grotesque and animalistic apostles, led by a certain former Baki Raka, rakshas who frightens and menaces the remaining Kushans before brutally dispatching them in the forest in a burst of blood. Now that the battle has concluded and the day nears its end, Mule finds himself in the camp of the Band of the Falcon – He notes how this hardly appears to be a battlefield. He's surrounded by idyllic pastoral imagery. Children playing, a woman breastfeeding her child, a woman flirting with an injured soldier. Indeed, he reflects that this scene seems more fitting for a peaceful village. Suddenly, Sonia, having read his mind, appears and says that they can all smile because of Lord Griffith. Sonia goes on to explain their band is named so after the legendary Band of the Falcon, and with Lord Griffith at its head, everyone wanted him to name it that. Sonya knows that Mule desires to meet Lord Griffith and leads him to meet the hero of the nation in person. So.
2: One thing. um, So several things here. Um, I think it's interesting that Griffith follows what has become his default tactic, which is to kill the leader, uh, to break the enemy's morale, and then to let uh, his armies finish them off. And uh, we will see over time that it's Often the same tactic being repeated. He uses the apostles to uh, rout the enemy. He cuts out the heart with Sonia's um, powers and insights and decapitates the leader. And then, you know, uh, when they're in disarray, uh, they're easy to to finish off. So it's interesting that it's established here. Um, I also think it's interesting that we see Sonia, when Sonia is introduced in Shet, we get to see that she's got powers, but it's not exactly clear what use she'll be to Griffiths, what will we be she used for. And so here we see uh, exactly what her uh, use is, which is uh, to be a medium, uh, able to read the flow of battle, warn people when danger is afoot, and help Griffiths um, achieve his goals. So, so that's interesting. And I love her intro, warning mule, and then you see her as she views the flow of things. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, I love Rakshas uh, in his role here as the cleanup crew, you know, leader of the cleanup crew. <laughs> we are not, yeah. I love I love that we are not even shown the massacre, just the bursts right. of blood uh, in the forest. Uh, I think that's just uh, just so cool.
1: The silhouette is very, very cool. The use of silhouette in general in this part is very cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Sonia's introduction here, reintroduction, I guess is what it is, really, Uh what an interesting power, you know, not just mind reading you know, initially she was read as someone who can, you know, hear the voice of the wind and that's basically drew her to Griffith who she knew would come to save them. So kind of foresight was the initial touch with her power. And then we see that it's also the ability to project thoughts or project images into people's minds. And then we see that she can not even just do something as simple as that, but also like on the macro level can see the flow of battle, how things are going, where people are moving, where... You know, the, the weak point is because of all that alignment of all the soldiers. So it's it's an interesting extrapolation of a psychic ability, of a telepathic ability that I don't have any analog for. I'm sure it's out there in fantasy or sci-fi somewhere, but this is a, I, I like the application of telepathy here. I think it's interesting. It's directly applied to a battlefield. It's not just some, you know, hocus pocus or, you know. Bullshit. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of neat the way it's. Played.
2: It's interesting that over time, even like nowadays, uh, up to volume forty, Miras kept her powers, kind of vague. We don't mm-hmm. know exactly where's the beginning, where's the stop. We know she can see the future before it happens. Sometimes, even like up to a day in advance, uh, or several days. We know she can. Views the flow of battle. So it's kind of the same thing, but extended to a wider number of people. Uh, It probably ties with the concept of odd uh, in this Mm -hmm. case. Um, But yeah, it's not exactly described in details. It's just she's a psychic. She's a medium. She can see things. She can see ghosts. Uh, she can see, she can read people's mind and talk to them telepathically. She can do a lot of things, and it's not clearly defined. And what I think doesn't necessarily need to be either. So I, I like the way Mira's uh, Mira's gone with it. You know, I think it's a uh, mm-hmm. it makes her interesting because we don't know exactly what the extent of her power is.
0: Right. Yeah, she's kind of a wild card for in a number of ways because of that. Uh, it is also interesting that. The Griffith kind of, this this whole scene, really, it's reminiscent or very familiar to anyone who was, you know, really like the Golden Age. It's, It's another one of those battles. But this episode and the past episode kind of realize, you realize how Mira is turning the page. It's not just a return to the Golden Age. There's a lot more supernatural happening in this section of the manga than the past. So I like how it was, this whole conflict was set up as a skirmish of human on human but as soon as griffith and his new force arrive suddenly the table gets turned and you see exactly why it's fundamentally different from the past and it's you know it's wilder what's happening on the page it's more, right it's more fantastical and that's you know precisely what millennium falcon is really all about is you know it is a Demon-on-demon demon conflict with humans kind of in the middle is really what this whole thing is about.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they don't realize it until the end, but they're just kind of observing. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, what's interesting is that, like I mentioned,
2: he kind of keeps the same tactic afterwards. And because he doesn't really need tactics anymore, you know. He Before that, he used to have to, for example, in the Battle of doldres had to draw the enemy out, have uh, a small group sneak in. All these things, but, and presumably in the many battles we didn't see, they had to use, you know, different tactics. Maybe Guts and his guys would draw um, a part of the army, do a diversion, then they would attack from some other flank. Here, no need for that. They have the apostles just disrupt the army, then Griffith cuts the leader's head, then the apostles and the humans finish up the rest. And it's repeated from here on out because yeah, he doesn't need to do more than that anymore. He can just cheat. He's got all these guys who are invincible, basically, and, and they can just, yeah, they can just do that and repeat it uh, as much as they want. So it also shows us, like you said, that there's just a page that's that's turned. Griffiths is not human anymore. Uh, his army is not just composed of humans anymore. And uh, as we see the, um, the lieutenant uh, in the woods, say, before Rakshas finishes him off, it's really just a uh, hundred people who destroy this army of five thousands, because uh, yeah. the, the war demons are enough to just get the job done. The humans uh, that follow Griffiths are just the clear crew, the guys who go after the, the survivors. They're not useless, but they're not the key assets. The key assets are
0: obviously the apostles. I do find it interesting, and still at the time it was interesting, and still interesting to me now that. Griffith needs Sonya to point out the opening vector uh, for her for him to attack. You know the weak point among all those you know flanks to to drive through. You know the opening that he yeah. can leap over and attack. You know because right. he's relying on her to point that out. Uh, presumably, presumably it's not just all a facade to make Sonya feel like she's part of the team. I don't think that's the case. Uh, But it's interesting that a God Hand member would need uh, that kind of support or guidance to do that. Yeah,
2: Um, I I agree. It's also something I've noted in the past is you could assume, like, we don't know, speaking of powers that are vague, we don't know the extent of the powers of the God Hand, you know? What can they do? mm -hmm. What can each of them individually can do? Like, could Ubik also crush... A guy by just, you know, closing his hand, Maybe. I mean, we don't know. We've never seen it, so probably not, but we don't know. Um, and to have him need to use Sonia for that, it, it does imply that he can't do it by himself. That her power is very unique and valuable to him, and that's why he keeps her with him. Because otherwise... Uh, she could be used just to warn lo- smaller guys or whatever and not him himself so it does it does imply a certain limit to what he can do to the amount of things he can foresee um, and yeah, that, that's very interesting it's an, again another way without showing us his perspective which remains hidden to us uh, showing us some of his limits like there are things he can do there are things he cannot do at least not by himself so even though he's got extreme power. Uh, so, yeah, that's a very good point to bring up.
0: On that same page uh, where we're seeing kind of lifting the veil a little bit about the limitations of what he can do on the battlefield, we see his horse fly over the troops. And, right. you know, you could, you could say that the horse just jumped, but they use the word that he flew over them. And there's that one panel at the very bottom of the page where it does look like he's, he's a good several feet over the troops at that point. Yeah. Um, interesting supernatural horse he has there. I know another flying horse. uh, (laughs) Maybe not as cool as this one. Oh, sorry. Cooler than this one. Yeah,
2: for sure. The Skull Knight's horse is the coolest (laughs) of them all. Actually, Mura did comment in the past that the Skull Knight is a character who flies for no reason whatsoever. (laughs) He was like, yeah, it's just a character who flies just because... It's cool. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And uh, we can assume that, yeah, he can just jump very high and whatever. And it's the same here. But obviously, it's not so much the horse as the one riding it. And indeed, we we do see Griffiths uh, doing these uh, giant jumps with his horse uh, several times throughout the series, even uh, recently against the Jotuns So um, I would say, uh, or should I say Jotnar, that's the actual... Pure form. Anyway, um, yeah, that's interesting. And indeed, that's a, a
0: demonstration of his powers. Once they get back to the camp, I do think it's intentional that I get you get very golden age vibes from the camp because it's almost like when Guts woke up at the Falcon camp the first time after he fought and lost against Griffith, where he wakes up and his first thought is basically that this doesn't look like any normal mercenary camp. And it's the same thought that Mule has, that it's, you know, they are... They're different. You wouldn't expect this to be on a battlefield. And and Sonia says it's because of Griffith's here that that's the case. And it, obviously, it's the same character of the Falcon Camp, also because of Griffith, the original one. So.
2: That's true, but I think it goes even beyond that. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, In the original band of the Falcon, they were mostly mercenaries. So they were cool and the atmosphere was great, but it was still mostly mercenaries around. Whereas here you get a lot of civilians. You see people repairing chariots. You see kids. There's a little girl carrying a chicken. And I think (laughs) that also uh, serves as a comparison to what the refugees' camps were in St. Albion. Uh, You had these... You know, terrible conditions, these people living terribly. And here you get, it's an army, but there's also this whole refugee camp aspect and everything's so peaceful and great. Uh, I mean, it just looks like a, a vision of paradise almost, whereas it should be, I mean, conditions should be harsh. Uh, army camps, usually the civilians that are tagging along are prostitutes, you know, that's that's how it goes. So, it, it's uh, it's very different here, and I think it goes again beyond what the Golden Age would have been uh, to push it into fantasy land, if you know yeah. what I mean.
1: It's like the nostalgia is being pumped up to 11 here. Like, not only is the army going through and handily defeating the the larger army so easily, not only that, but they're so happy and and relaxed, and everybody's having a great time. It's like a picnic out there.
0: Yeah, uh, pretty much. You can Hardly believe well, it, it. I never really th- thought about that before, Azil, and that's it's true because it, this is this is more of a refugee camp by necessity because everyone was displaced by the Kushan invasion. They don't have a home to return to, so that in itself is fundamentally different from the Golden Age, where you know sorties and battles were happening out in the front line somewhere, but people still had homes. They weren't being displaced like they are in this invasion. So, yeah. by necessity, they're kind of a roving—you know, almost a city, a city-state kind of thing. Yeah, exac- exactly.
2: Exactly. They're, they're keeping, and it's interesting um, that they choose to keep these women and children and, you know, uh, basket weaving uh, old people around. <laughs> There's always a guy weaving a bas- weaving basket. Weaving baskets. That's why I say so. Uh, yeah, because um, it shows. It also shows that they are not. Like a, a liberation army would want to move fast to keep provisions to themselves, and they would liberate a place and move on, and they would leave these guys behind. Uh, but it's not what's happening here. So again, it's interesting to to view that as a, a you know in contrast to what a normal army would be, and it serves to push uh, this new band of the Falcon into to me fantasy territory where it's truly like they've got this great leader, unstoppable army, and everything's. Paradise, and obviously uh, the next episode uh, with the forest serves as a contrast to that, showing the dark side
0: of this little paradise. Uh, one last thing before we turn the page, and that is, uh, it, it wasn't spoken, but it seems obvious that the, these humans that are happy to be here, happy to be helping build this new force, it's really the beginnings of Falconia. Like this is them joining a new alliance of humans that are really, it's a conglomeration of different people from throughout Midland and beyond. Ultimately, they'll form a new nation and they're helping found it themselves. It's not just Griffith out there fighting by himself. It's humans participating in their own kind of liberation.
2: Indeed, and we can already see here the the beginnings of the cult of Griffith. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Where, again, same thing. You compare to Golden Age arc. He was already a magnificent leader adored by his men everybody thought he was different you know we famously have Corcas yell at Guts, saying you can't be like Griffiths no one is like him he's special he's different but here is beyond that it's again it's, Griffiths is the one who makes this possible the whole thing is possible because of him and everybody reverse him. And uh, obviously, there's already his pre-established legend, which Mule had heard of, his men had heard of. But it's reinforced by uh, this episode and the next one again, the next few ones, uh, which show him being not just a great human, but a supernatural being
0: that goes beyond mankind. The next episode, 194, is Wings of Light and Darkness, the episode title, of course, referring to, you could say it's a reflection of Griffith himself, or Femto, the Wings of Light and Darkness. But it's also, I think, referring to, to the division of the Band of the Falcon between humans and apostles, you know, of light and of mm-hmm. darkness. Yep. So the summary is um, Mule making his way through the camp, seeing a little bit more of it, mostly about the those that are training for horses and uh, horse riding. And he sees one of this, actually one of the people deli- delivering the instruction is a cushion, which makes him anger angered. But he encounters Locus, who explains that those who have proven themselves can join their ranks, which is a progressive idea that shocks Mule. As they go deeper in the camp, Mule encounters Grunbeld and Irvine, who rescue him from some unruly apostles who are really sick of having to dine just on animal meat and they still crave the taste of humans. Just beyond the forest where apostles have gathered, there, Mule sees Zod, who's guarding the entrance to where Griffith is, and the episode ends as Mule sees an otherworldly sight, souls gathering around Griffith. So yeah, what's interesting here is we're seeing how this balancing act between apostles and humans is working. Uh, But we also get an idea of how Griffith himself has kind of uh, fostered these progressive ideas for how they can win this fight. And it involves basically flattening the curve of humans. Uh, The fact, the idea that they're not going, they're going to shed this whole, what's the word, the previous stigma they have of other armies so they can make their force stronger, even if that's a tough pill to swallow for them. But again, I, I think really though, more broadly, it's because this is a fight between demons and humans, as I said before, are kind of in the middle. So like Locus's perspective is the fact that two humans are bickering over something is kind of amusing because really <laughs> what hope do they really have uh, by the, by themselves? So. Like Mule says, though two hold a grudge, in the end they are still the same human. And in the end, you may come to know that your former enemies are not so different from you. Mm. He's sounding very altruistic here. Like, take the take the, the the better path here, boy. But in fact, I think it's a reference more to there's a division between humans and apostles within this group, and your enemy is more like you than you are to me. Yeah, there's
2: kind of a double meaning to what he says, which is great because it's only like only visible to the reader. To Mule, it sounds like Locus is speaking wisely as a fact mm-hmm. that in the end, a man and a man are the same. But as a reader, we know that he's speaking as an apostle. Uh, it's like he's speaking about insects. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. a fly, a bee. What's the difference? <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. That, the page where Locus is introduced is really fantastic. Uh this is, um, is it the first time we've seen him without his helmet? I think it is, yeah. Yeah. His hair is draping down, and the way the light is positioned, it's like the sun is going down behind him. Um, and so everything's cast in shadow. At the same time, Mule has this reaction that he's, you know, terrified being in the presence of this man, like he's in the presence of some huge beast, is what he says, which, as we know, is what often humans sense around apostles it's a natural foreboding uh, feeling like you're being stared at by a wild beast. I just really think. I love this little page, this kind of shadow glow coming off of him. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you could say it's a result of the sun, but it's also kind of a gloomy effect that apostles bring with them. Yeah,
2: it's his uh, aura, I would say. Yeah.
0: It's absolutely. his
1: signature look, is the, is the, <laughs> yeah. I, I, the shadow.
2: I think it's uh, great that Mira kept it in here, even towards an ally. You know, it goes, mm-hmm. uh, it kind of goes without saying, but. He shows that the true nature of apostles can't be hidden, even when they are friendly towards a human. He still feels this extremely intimidating and overpowering fear and you know aura of, like you said, like it's a it's a huge beast staring down at them. And I think it's interesting that Mira made the choice. He could have depicted them as perfect fakes, like Griffiths, able to look you know majestic and whatever. But instead, he chose to keep them being what they are and we've you know, that right. kind of atmosphere. So I, I think that was great.
1: Right. And as they go further into the forest to see the rest of the apostles who aren't, I, I'm presuming, not able to hide their monstrousness as easily and readily as Locus. And Yeah.
0: Locus has a hall pass because he's a cool, you know, more normal seeming, you know, apostle. Yeah, he, whereas, can, he
1: can pass as human more yeah. easily, whereas they're like, they borderline look like monsters on their own. So yeah.
0: Yeah, they're kind of cordoned off in the dark part of the forest. You know, I I just think it's very interesting that Griffith or whoever else's solution to the division between humans and apostles is just just keep a certain distance. Yeah, everything will be fine. <laughs> hide them, you know, right? Will, yeah, hide them in the forest. It's all gonna work out. Yeah. Later we'll put them in the city together. But don't worry about it. It's gonna be right. cool. Yeah, it's
2: interesting, and the way things develop, uh, we if the culmination – uh, when they fight Ganishka in uh, Windham is interesting. When Sonia talks to the humans about things, they all fight together. Finally assembled, showing their true colors. It's interesting, especially since as soon as uh, Falconia is created, they revert back to that separation of even though they could come together for that one battle. The apostles have to stay in a place and the humans in another as they can't really mingle uh, with one another. I I think it's an interesting, again, way to to show things, to show that fundamentally they cannot
0: coexist. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I think in that moment, though, I know we're speaking about a volume, you know, 11 volumes in advance. But I do think when Sonya made that message and humans started fighting for apostles, Apostles recognized that, and, and they started fighting back too. Like They were allied at that moment. It, yeah. That wasn't just, to me, a pitch made so that humans would be more sensitive to apostles. Apostles also rose to the occasion to protect their human allies. You see the reaction to that as well. As humans die, apostles get angered and fight back. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting thing that happens in that episode. But as you say, it kind of returns to that division really because we're talking about wolves and sheep, right? I mean, like you can yep. get – Somebody to put them in the same room for maybe a minute or two, and they can maybe shake hands, <laughs> not eat each other. One it's of
2: like them. at the circus, I know. hey! Right. But eventually, then <laughs> so you gotta, gotta throw them, them back with the electric thing Otherwise, uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that to me, that's this whole episode is the, about the division. And what's interesting is that there are some enforcers among them. I it's 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 the predictable faces, right? It's the more uh, re- revered apostles. Grunbeld is kind of the hall monitor here, yeah. Uh, stopping Mule and Sonia from being injured by the apostles. And Irvine intervenes as well. Mm. But there's a delicate balance here. And what's interesting is one of the apostles that grabs Sonia, You know, he's he stopped by the threat of violence, but also Griffith keeping them in check. She says she's a, she'll tell on Griffith right now and he like, oh no, you know, like, yeah. it makes me wonder what kind of threat Griffith represents to these, you know, unruly apostles, well, um, pretty, pretty clear what would happen, but yeah. I would have loved to have seen it happen. Someone like Riald or someone who's insubordinate to this cause, you know, getting them ripped apart in a scene like this would have been nice, I, but I, instead it's, go ahead. I was going to say, I think a, a
2: single look would be enough.
1: Yeah, I think that for one thing that this episode shows is that Griffith is larger than life, both for humans, but also for the apostles. He's he's so beyond any of them that, you know, he wouldn't even have to say anything because he's got this whole group of generals who are taking care of business for him.
2: I do think yeah. something you haven't really uh, commented on is that Sonia's attitude with the apostles mm-hmm in itself is fascinating to me. Yeah, she, She's not afraid at all where, where she should be. She doesn't exactly know what they are, but she knows what they are capable of. At the same time, she's so distanced from mankind herself that she just said, hey, I'll try to bring you a corpse later on uh, to, to the guy, even though Grunbold has been you know, uh, chastising him. So that whole little thing... Again, I think it perfectly uh, uses Mule as the everyman, the window into what it's like for a normal guy to enter the crazy world and meet these extraordinary people. And that goes, of course, about Griffith, about the Apostles, but also about Sonia, who's just such a very special girl. and very I mean, she's very odd. She's not a normal girl, and I I think this episode shows it very well.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, she's very aloof, but I think part of that comes from the fact that She feel probably, I'm just, you know, reading into it a little bit. She probably knows that Griffith is there and Griffith can protect her. And I don't think she has fear because of that. Also, she seems to have like a higher order understanding of The limitations of these things because they haven't harmed her yet or because she's under the protection of griffith they wouldn't dare to harm her so there's something else subliminally happening here. i think even beyond her abilities
2: i mean i agree in principle that being said she does seem overly confident these guys they're not how to say they're not geniuses right so even Mm -hmm. though yeah they would they might be killed by griffiths if they're I'm hungry enough. They might still eat her before anybody can intervene. You know what I mean?
0: Uh... I just think she's a weird girl as well, though. I mean, I think she's... uh, the first. My first word is that she's very aloof to this. I think it's just because she's sensitive to some things but not sensitive to others, you know? Like, she's not reacting like Mule is. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. Mule recognizes that innate aversion to wanting to be around this, you know, pack of beasts. But to her, it's just basically falling on deaf ears. And you could say that she's been conditioned to be around them. That's probably part of it. But I also just think she's just a weird. Yeah.
1: girl. I think yeah, I think it's in her nature to to be okay with the unusual because yeah. she's been unusual for her whole life.
0: I think
2: I think it's partly her powers. and I think she's also you could say neuroatypical. She's not it might be because of her powers, since she can see into the future, maybe she already knew she wasn't gonna die, so she wasn't afraid. Uh, but I think, yeah, in general, she does not seem to be, like, her behavior is not that of a standard girl of her age. And that goes also with how she acts in Britannia uh, later on, how she acts around Mule, how she acts around Griffiths. She just has a very specific uh, perception of the world, which in itself is, uh, is very interesting. We, we don't get to see it... Uh, in these episodes. But I think her own perspective is also very interesting. And we still, I think we still don't know exactly what she knows, what she understands, how she perceives the world, what what things are important to her and what things aren't. Like she doesn't seem to especially value human life. Uh, you know, it, it's a, she's just a very interesting character, I
0: think. Yeah, the, the fact that she doesn't really know much about apostles is interesting. I mean, that itself is very revealing. That she she was, would let aud- readers know that. Yeah, it's not that she's in on it. She's still effectively an innocent because she's not. It's yeah. not like she's what's the word? Rationalizing a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. She's not at that point yet. You she, know? Doesn't, she doesn't. Know yeah, that.
2: she doesn't know and she doesn't really care. And the same with Griffiths. She she doesn't exactly know what he is, but she knows mm-hmm. about his power. She knows he's a higher kind of being. So it's this whole but she does she does seem to me to be how to say not very uh she doesn't emphasize with people too much. She doesn't seem to be saddened or by death or that kind of thing. You know you know what I mean?
0: Right. I, almost... Are you referring to the corpse thing?
2: Yeah, the corpse even in general, her just her general attitude in these episodes and beyond, she never seemed to be too sentimental to me, aside from her crush on uh you know who?
1: Yeah, and it's like with the the flow of battle, like the 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 ebb and flow of battle. It's almost like she's viewing it as like a natural course, or or uh, maybe like a cyclical thing, or or an abstract thing. She sees death differently than other people. Yeah, because of
2: that. I agree. It might also be that she has again a window into the cycle of life beyond what normal people would have.
1: Right. Right. So uh, the one thing we haven't
0: discussed yet is uh, there's a there's a couple things. The most striking to me about this whole episode, though, is when they enter the forest. The art style kind of changes a little bit because it's being portrayed as in shadows. So Mira uses this like hatching effect that just looks honestly like a like a painting or something like some kind of etching. It looks incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the the various shading lines he uses to display these silhouettes of the apostles, and they're all kind of sharp-edged, uh, menacing-looking beings, all varying sizes. We've seen apostles one-on-one. We've seen reality. We've seen Zod. We saw the silhouettes of the eclipse. We saw the big masses of them. But we've never seen apostles quite like this, like gathering around in a somewhat peaceful setting, right? It's very surreal to see them all gathered like this, yeah, armoured up.
2: staying in the shadow. And uh, I think it, how to say, it exemplifies well the title of the episode, uh, Light and darkness, they truly are the dark side of that army and showing them like this, silhouetted with their uh, features not well, you know, shown. All of this, I think it it goes very well with uh, what Mira intended to to show a different atmosphere, almost a different world with that that same uh, army.
0: We also got a little bit of background on both uh, Locus and Grunveld. Uh, Locus was a peerless knight who never accepted a master. And we give a nice one-panel shot of him on a horse as a, with his lance in hand. Uh, still has his moonlight you uh, know, d- 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 dueling crescent moons on his horse armor. <laughs> uh, so we got a little bit of a story about him, presumably him as a human. Uh, I'm guessing. It's kind of hard to say if he was an apostle at that moment or not, but... I would presume this is him as a human mm. um, and that warriors and sons, you know, grew up hearing bedtime stories about his tales of heroism. So, you know, a famous knight uh, that presumably has been around for a, a long time. If stories have been generated like that for a while, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And Grunbeld is a warrior from the north who held off a great two door force for a, d- a decade with a small force of his own. Nicknamed we'll just leave the- it at that. <laughs> yeah, that's all that happens Uh, nicknamed the Great Flame Dragon because of um, mowing down his fiery red hair and mowing down enemies. So we get really, what's the word, succinct uh, past lives from these characters, these important characters introduced now. So that's interesting that Mira bothered to do that, but it's not just for readers' sake. He's he's, he's grounding these people as known legendary warriors so that Mule recognizes them.
2: Yeah, again, Mule serves as a vessel to convey that information Mm -hmm. to us because they're legendary.
1: To create – sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say to create a, a comparison to real life, it kind of reminds me of King Arthur and his court and how mm-hmm. he – the King Arthur himself is a legendary figure, but his knights also have all these stories about them. That's what made me yeah. think of.
0: Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, I think the, the mention of peregrination isn't a, a mistake. I think it's. I think you're supposed to be thinking of those kinds of things as well.
2: For sure. Yeah. It's interesting – there's a few things. It's interesting that only two of them get that kind of treatment, uh, Locus and Grunbeld. And Irvine and Rakshas uh, they operate in the shadows. Rakshas was banned from the backyaraka, so obviously he's got history with them, but otherwise he's unknown. And Irvine as a lonely hunter is also not a legendary warrior. So I, I like that it's not, that he didn't just make all of them super famous retroactively. Mm -hmm. And I also find it interesting, uh, the contrast, because they're all knights, so it's hard to make it uh, distinct and unique, but I like that uh, Locus was that guy who would not commit to a a lord. Uh, It's different, it's both similar and different from Zod, who was just a mercenary fighting on the battlefield, who basically followed no one and had no rules. Um, and and for Grimbel, obviously, the idea is that he was himself his own master and uh, fought great battles and all these things. So it's it just yeah, it's interesting that he went at it that way.
1: Yeah,
0: I really like that Zod is by himself. He's apart from the group. He's not with the humans, obviously, but he's also not with the apostles. You could say he's just playing guard duty, which he is. He's there at the basically the entrance or the back door to where Griffith is, apart from how the public gets to see this display. But he's there all by himself, you know. I think that's interesting because he's, he's not like a normal pos- apostle. He doesn't think of himself as a normal apostle. He thinks of himself as apart from them. So yeah. I think that's neat. And
2: he he follows Griffith and only him. And so he stays by his side, pretty much. Yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting. One thing maybe we went over a bit quickly is um, the exposition we get at the beginning about... Uh, how the band of the Falcon is integrating Kushan uh, soldiers, which is something they got from the Kushans themselves. They adapted to their way, and uh, but instead of driving them by fear and basically just getting them killed without really caring, they try to foster them uh, to really become parts of the of the army. So I, f- I found that interesting to get that, that background information. To see that guy who does a translation, and we see the Kushans are teaching the uh, Midlandian soldiers how to shoot while, uh, to shoot arrows while on a horseback, which is a very difficult skill, and it's uh, notably uh, how the Mongols were able to conquer a lot of, uh, of land back in the day, you know, because they, they could shoot while riding on a horseback, and they could shoot very accurately, which is a, a delicate skill. So I thought it interesting that Mura chose to portray that and to show Kushan soldiers teaching the others uh, that kind of skills.
1: That's an interesting historical tidbit. Um, but to your point, Az, that's an interesting thing to bring up how the Kushan army is very like fear-oriented, just kind of pushing people to do what they want, whereas Griffith's army is more idealized, and it kind of shows the, the upcoming conflict of image that we're going to see.
0: Yeah, indeed. And that- well, it's also, it also something that spills over into Falconia, because Falconia is, is made of people who must work, um, like a meritocracy, must work to be lifted up.
2: Right. Indeed. And the fear aspect is something that is a sort of a prelude to what we get to yeah. see with Ganishka. So that's also interesting that it's introduced this early on, that uh, fear is what drives them, and it's a key component of their army and their system. Also right, it's
1: from the top all the way down to the bottom. Yeah,
2: exactly. And there's also the fact, which is something Locus mentions, that the Christian Empire is composed of many different tribes who are united under one emperor, and they all have their each their own um, grudges and you know objectives and whatnot. And again, I, I thought it was interesting to introduce it that early. Um, just a little, little bit of background information that fleshes out the empire without spending you know, any real time on it. So I I like these little details. I think that adds depth and width
0: to the story. Yeah. And and we don't get it until later, but, you know, you you guys have already alluded to it, but Ganishka, the emperor of terror, someone who has previous to this, you know, waged decades of war to, you know, assimilate various places under his rule. Uh, So, yeah, I I think not only does it stem from the top down in terms of Ganishka influencing how, the overall force is managed uh, through his way of management, but also the fact that the, the entire empire itself has probably been subjected to decades of this kind of warfare. So it's just naturally a result of that.
2: Yeah. And it's a, again something that, uh, how to say, is explained uh, with the way their armies work, because it's not something they just picked up as they were conquering Milan you know, to use uh, slaves, uh, integrate them, put them on the front line and and whatnot, is something they presumably started doing long ago and which served them well in their uh, previous battles. And that's how their armies could grow to be so many, so much so that they were able to try to conquer the entirety of the Holy See um, countries. Right. So, anyway... um, Next episode is The Night of the Falling Stars As Mule arrives before Griffiths he sees the souls of the departed dance around him like fireflies while he rests on a tree trunk We see Griffiths send a soul to his wife and son for a fleeting farewell before ending the session After people leave Sonia rushes to jump in Griffiths' arms Mule asks him where those lights went and Griffiths answers to a place where they will become one Then they introduce themselves with Mule, expressing deep thankfulness for the Band of the Falcons' intervention. Mule comments on how he had imagined Griffiths to be a muscular, warrior-like man, but instead he doesn't even look human. And as he thinks so, he starts crying and instinctively pledges his sword to Griffiths, even while internally expressing shock at his own actions. It seems to him to be destiny. While this takes place, Five Bakiraka assassins are all overlooking the scene from atop a small hill. They aim a poisoned arrow at Griffiths, but are interrupted by Rakshas, who dispatches them. The art below looks up without flinching. The scene ends with their silhouettes on the starry sky as Mule reflects on the legendary quality of the moment. In an abrupt cut that makes the contrast more stark, we see Guts' newly formed group as they fight skeletons rising out of a swamp. Then try to coordinate themselves in their new uneasy roles as the night starts. So, very interesting episode from my point of view. Uh, we get to see that, that line, which I really love, uh, when Griffith tells mules that the souls go to a place where they will become one, because obviously it refers to <laughs> the great ocean of souls that lies down at the very, very bottom of the utter world. And uh, all of what we've seen from it in the past is in the form of the vortex of souls, and it's not a, a very nice place to go to. And the fact he tells Mule, ah, you'll see someday." We everybody goes there. It's um, it's again, it's it's kind of a double meaning thing where to the reader it has another qualities, and to than it does to Mule himself. So just like with Locus olio I, I really like that a lot. Um, I also like that uh, Griffiths reveals the provisions Mule offered, uh, offered them will allow the Band of the Falcon to go on from several months. It also shows that rescuing them was not a selfless endeavor. Maybe it wasn't even planned, but it does show that there was a, an interest uh, and that Mule had worse. He hasn't been sitting on his thumbs uh, for all this time. Um, also, in, And Griffith didn't even have to bone an old guy to get a war this time. <laughs> it, yeah. Indeed. Hey, double bonus. I mean, he yeah. does have a young, n- nubile young man uh, in front of him now, so who knows? Oh, it's true. <laughs> Bending over. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, kneeling down, but you know, I mean. <laughs> yeah, that's how it starts. <laughs> so anyway, interesting thing is that Mule knows him as a white falcon, which is his title from when he was a mercenary. So again, it shows that his legend as a mercenary from the Golden Age arc still serves him here. Um, another thing very interesting to me is that Sonia says that Griffiths greatly amplifies her power. When when she's near him, her powers become you know much bigger. So that's an interesting uh, thing, and it makes me wonder, like, who can she do on her own? It's not like she's powerless on her own, but... Whether, for example, can she read an entire battlefield when Griffith is not there? Uh, it's, int- it's an interesting thing to, to think about to me. Last mm-hmm. thing I wanted to mention is that Mule's last name was changed in the volume. It was originally Woru Fu in Young Animal, and it became Woru in the volume. Dakos translated it as wolf flame, but it's more likely wa flame in this case. Generally, in Japanese, in cases like this, an R is represented by a long vowel, while an L will be a ru katakana.
0: I wonder, I think it's interesting that the souls gather around Griffith. Uh, I don't think it's explicitly explained anywhere. We can extrapolate a little bit about it based on a couple of comments that have been made. So, Shirke, when she first sees Griffith, From her, she was assuming the form of a bird at the time, or actually projected into a bird, or whatever she did. She said that the flow of Odd was great around him and that she she risked being swallowed up by it. So it kind of implies that there's basically some kind of astral gravity around Femto's presence in the astral world. So it's like a big force, right? We've always talked about what Femto and Griffith represent in the physical world. It's like the giant body of Femto, the giant astral body of Femto, was squeezed into. The shell of a human so but his astral body is still huge and still powerful right so it would make sense though in some way that souls that are trapped between the physical and astral world sometimes just gravitate around him as the, the largest body almost like planetoids right planets moons around a planet gravitate to that
2: so that's a great point point. one thing i wonder is whether they naturally gather around him or whether he brings them to him because it also seems like, like, clearly he's got control over them. He grabs a soul, sends it to uh, the family, and it takes the form of the husband for a fleeting moment before uh, losing it, and then he sends them away. So one might wonder, does he choose when they go away? Does he choose when they appear? Does he just say, okay, you now it's over, on am bored, and sends them you know, flying off? I'm just curious uh, what amount of control he's got over them. And my assumption for all these years has been that, yes, he does choose to call them to him forcibly, and then he chooses to send them
0: in the abyss when he's done. So, rhetorical question, why? Why the light show? Why does he bother to do wow. that? Well, <laughs> why would
2: he do a light show except to impress the audience? And I think I think it is to impress the audience, to bring them comfort. To solidify his status as not just a leader, not just a military leader, but a religious figure, a messiah. He's, he's not just, again, we're past the golden age here. We're into fantasy land and Griffiths is not just a great military general. He's a messiah who's got magical powers. And even it's something they actually comment on in the manga. Even after people die, they know it's not the end. They know they can still see their loved ones and they know because it's Griffiths that they'll go to a better place. Now, obviously, that's where it's uh, ironic that Griffith yeah. knows they are not necessarily going to a good place, but they
1: don't know that. They just find out where they get there. So uh, it's a sort of spiritual lubricant that keeps everybody happy. Yes, yeah. it's, it's making sure everybody's following what Griffith wants them to do. It's just to make sure that everybody's united in in this one mission, so that he doesn't have to do any extra work. I feel like.
2: <laughs> and it also, I think, it also prepares. Again, like we said before, it prepares his status uh, later on as a as the actual Messiah of the Holy See, which he he's recognized that, and that's something that is. We even see it in Falconia; it becomes this big rituals. Sonia is all dressed up as, in, as a priestess, so it becomes kind of a religious thing. And I think that's again the beginning in in this backwood. That's the beginning of of this religious adoration of Griffiths and him performing miracles
0: to his audience and his uh, blind white chip. The answer to me is that it makes him, it makes him supernatural. It forces people to see that he's more than just a mercenary, you know, leader or or a pretender to the legend that, you know, kind of comes before him. He's a, he's the real deal something bigger than human. And he, as you said, he also is stepping neatly into the shoes of the Falcon of light, you know, religious icon. So it works to his favor. Yeah. The other big thing about this episode, and I feel like of all that happens in this you know, this whole section of episodes, this one little moment with Mule at the end is the one that I, I usually refer to as kind of like an evidence piece for active causality or like what causality means when it's brought to bear on somebody. And we see it really happening to Mule here, whenever he's his his heart starts beating, and he acts irrationally. He acts against his own character, what he might think he would do, because he's so lost in some kind of weird moment. He's spurred to action by this this weird thing that happens with his body. He starts crying. He surprises himself with tears, and he pledges himself to Griffith, which is you know something that he wouldn't normally just randomly do to someone he just met. He he recognizes that he's acting strangely, but he's also driven by something you know deep in his in his in his in his heart. Deepest within me, there's a voice, an inescapable, emboldened voice saying, this is destiny. Sounds like causality to me. It sounds like he's being, has has been conditioned yeah. his whole life for this being like kind of a key unlocking moment for him, basically. That this is his moment to shine. Yeah.
2: I'm not sure it's even that he was conditioned his whole life as more of a, how do you say? It's one of the less subtle times we see causality kind of force things uh, for mm-hmm. someone's hand, where uh, maybe he wasn't necessarily conditioned or anything, but in this moment, with these things happening, he felt that compulsion and he pledged his sword even without understanding it and and yeah, that's that's just a force beyond him uh, forcing him, constraining him to to do that. and yeah, I think it's obviously a causality here at work. And again, it seems to be one of the less subtle times uh, we see it in action, but clearly there's no doubt to me that that is the case, yeah.
0: There's also that brilliant last two pages of this episode, actually not the last two, second to last two, I guess, the two page of the starry night with the falling star happening on the horizon, the way that, I love the, how Mira had conveyed the, the stars, clearly was like a paint, paint splatter kind of effect, but with the dark silhouettes and the dark sky. I thought that was very very well done.
2: Yeah, sure. And, and I love that before that, we see Rakshas. Well, we don't really see, but we yeah. can guess that he's mangling these guys. And after that, even better, we see, we got to Guts' group uh, as a fighting in a swamp, and th- that that contrast between this legendary scene <laughs> with this starry sky and the souls, and then we see undead souls also, but possessing rotting skeletons, and and we see these guys, these humans, trying to survive and fight and you know get through the night. And that contrast is something Murazov and said. The contrast between uh, Griffiths flying in the sky, untouchable, and guts crawling in the mud—yeah, exactly—it's
0: uh, <laughs> it's, it's just great. I just love it. I'm glad you brought that up. I couldn't find the words, but that was what I was going to say. But that's that's it. Yeah, the difference between those two. Um, I don't have much more to say about this episode. Anybody else?
1: No, I think I think we said as much as there is to say. I did like what you said earlier about the contrast. Uh, to Guts's group in the same episode, where it goes from looking up at the stars, having this amazing moment, and then we're back in the shit, we're back in the mm-hmm. swamp <laughs> to fight <Yep>. the, the <laughs> fight the swamp zombies.
0: Look at the snails, the, like the mollusks in that guy's eye.
1: Yeah, so creepy. Pretty gross. And it really.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, he's a he's a rotting corpse. So
1: yeah. Yeah, it's not a good look, but it really, just really, really emphasizes the difference of where these two groups are, and how Griffith is on his way up to drinking tea and having a great time, and and then Guts is is literally struggling for his life with Casca and the group.
2: What I like in these in these few few pages is uh, we see the group as they are just beginning to set in their roles of coordinating and, you know, fighting together, right. basically. And you see Farnese has trouble keeping Casca uh, next to her, taking care of the fire. Puck is uh, driving Isidro, and Serpico is, you know, by himself. He, he can do his own thing. So it's interesting to see that. And if I have just one more thing to say about the skeletons is we actually don't get to see Gus fighting skeletons that of fun in the series. And I love to see him fighting skeletons, so each little time we get to see it, I'm just, I'm just very glad. So there's that time in Volume 1, there's this time. These are precious, so I cherish them. Love it.
1: So, we can move on to Episode 196, Like a Baby. Uh, the episode opens with a shot of Isidro holding a stick, looking determined. He lunges forward, and as we flip the page, we see that his opponent, along with a stick in hand, is Guts. Guts, of course, easily bops Isidro on the head, uh, ending his attack, while uh, Serpico and Puck look on appraisingly, enjoying Serpico's soup. And on the previous page, they have a little comedic moment where they're watching him and probably thinking, this is not going to work. Uh- <laughs> Guts explains to Isidro that while he has some free time to spar with him and explain the basics of battle, Isidro needs to learn to think for himself and learn how to take advantage of his size and circumstances to fit him in any given conflict. Serpico and Puck pointedly ignore him while discussing soup to comic effect. Isidro sports a comically huge, looney tunes sized lump and comments that they've become domesticated. And it looks like Serpico has sort of become the group's uh, cook. And that comes up again later in the episode. Uh, nearby, Farnese gathers firewood while Casca plays with dried leaves. Farnese reflects on how in recent days, since we last saw the group, Farnese has been slowly learning and making lots of mistakes with tasks ranging from the inconsequential to the crucial, namely looking after Casca while the rest of the crew fights off spirits uh, attracted to the brand. Farnese is feeling dejected and sorry for herself and looks back on how naive she was to feel confidence in that going with Guts would change her dramatically after the Tower of Conviction, as long as she went with him. It connects to Guts's own feelings earlier in the volume for how he felt about going with Casca following the events at the Tower. She looks to Casca and apologizes to her for her actions as the head of the Holy Iron Chain Knights, and they play together in leaves for a moment. Later on, Farnese is distracted by a rabbit and in hopes of catching it to further assist the group. Farnese uh, is looking away while Casca wanders off. It's growing close to nighttime, and Farnese becomes panicked while searching for her. She wanders deeper into the forest, becoming lost, ultimately falling asleep inside of a tree trunk. Uh, the next morning, Isidro and Serpico find her. With a help, healthy and happy Casca in tow, it turned out that she had returned to the camp motivated by hunger. Isidro explains, however, that Serpico ran off looking for Farnese, leaving Isidro and Guts alone to look after Casca while they fought off the spirits. Looking beyond the group, Farnese sees Guts giving what I can only describe as a signature Mira expression. An expression that says a thousand words without saying anything, and he walks off uh, clearly uh, irritated.
0: It's disappointed Dad
1: disappointed Dad, that like I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed, and uh Isidro says to Farnese, don't cost us so much time. What do you do if the baby what do we do if the babysitter goes missing? And Farnese is mortified, very embarrassed, uh after a little bit of a time jump, we see that she's sitting by the river uh with Serpico, who's gathering water for the group to uh make some. More soup because he's he's clearly cooking more for the group now. Uh, Farnese reflects on the fact that she's become a burden to the group, and Serpico is clearly surprised but not necessarily unhappy with the idea of you know her maybe changing her mind and asks, "Shall we go back to the holy city?" And after a pause, Farnese seems to regain her her you know motivation and determination she says i never said that if i go back i'll become buried again referencing to their flashback episodes in vertanis and she says however helpless helpless and clumsy for the first time i'm discovering myself so she is kind of renewing her motivation and her drive to be helpful to the group and and find her way and in the next part we get a little bit of you know, world building a little bit of information about what's going on around us outside of Griffith and Guts's individual groups. They talk to a very well-informed uh, shepherd who tells them about if they want to reach the sea and avoid people as much as possible, take this old highway over the mountain pass. Uh You're going to the, if you're headed for the port of Vrtannis and you'd be careful, it's becoming a military base for several allied countries. Uh, the Holy See is gathering armies from various lands. And it looks like a big war from the Kushans with the Kushans is gonna start. So they're essentially planning their approach to Vertanis to get to the sea so that they can get to Elfhelm, but the shepherd warns them that they're more than humans in these mountains and that they are trolls. And that is the end of the episode. Dun dun dun. So. It's a very talky-talky episode. Very talky-talky. Lots of lots of dialogue, but it was very interesting. Yeah. What did you guys make of it? Very dense.
0: Yeah, yeah it's the reality hits for Farnese and her nice uh, endeavor to become a better person. Yeah. I
2: think, I mean, there's so much in this episode, starting with the beginning. Uh, one of the great, great comedic scenes uh, Mira's done in the series, <laughs> I think, where you where you see uh, Isidro training and there's a shot of Puck and Serpico with their eyes mm-hmm. closed. Then he gets bopped, like you said, and uh, and you see that they are tasting the soup. Uh, it's one of the all-time favorites, <laughs> mine at least. So I think it's worth commenting. And it shows that life, we, we've seen them fighting at night, uh, specters and demons and skeletons and whatnot. This also shows a day-to-day life, uh, Serpico cooking, playing as uh, a, you know, uh, taster in chef. <laughs> uh, Isidro training and basically God's advising him to try to adapt to style that's more fitting for his body and aptitudes. So that kind of stuff. And obviously, like you said, foreign is a, I think that's a very interesting episode for her uh, and, and very important one as well, because we see her trying to do good. She reflects on her failures uh, so they're using random mushrooms and poisoning the food, trying to wash the clothes, but she actually ruins them. Isidro's shirt in this uh, in this case, yeah. um, and you know trying to to fight at night and burning Isidro's ass, <laughs> and even when she tries to to catch the rabbit to help with the food, like you said, she she messes up, ends up being scared because it's night and um, and having to to hide. So she she has that. Reflection on herself, wondering if she's a burden, uh, and she's at a, a low time in her quest to change herself. So very interesting to see her like that, especially when we know how she develops uh, afterwards.
0: I think that's a very, very big time right. for her. Walter, yeah. what do you think? Well, you mentioned your favorite, one of your favorite comedic moments is that opening. I, actually, one of the most downplayed comedy moments to me is the fact that Farnese, who's the babysitter, gets lost but the baby the, the kid yeah. is the one that easily finds her way back to camp through like, with no problems yeah 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 just like yeah this is no big deal I found my way back from being lost in the woods of course you're the one that's incapable here and she's just dejected at the whole reality yeah, that the babysitter is the now the baby that. yeah I just love that reversal uh of it and it's not even played up for comedy it just said very matter of factly that casket came back but I find oh. it very funny Um
2: and the, the title, the episode title itself, is uh, again uh, as a double meaning. It's both about Casca and for right. herself. Who and I find it interesting that Mira uses Isidro to be the kind of the intolerant guy that tells the truth that she's useless. And Gus just he doesn't say anything. He's just like you said earlier, Grail, He's just
0: disappointed. He's got that look that says a million things. Guts really is barely even a part of this episode. It's also interesting because, again, we're – it's a Farnese chapter – sorry, episode, Jesus. Um, but Guts is just kind of the background character here. Um, and it's really about Farnese and how she's fitting in with the group. Um, but we also get a little bit of Serpico, just comedy, really. Uh, we talked a lot about in Volume 23 earlier about – the life on the road, the small details, and there's a lot of that here with Serpico fetching water to cook with uh, and how the little the little uh, small events in life, all the mistakes add up to like a real problem for the group. So it was basically... Everything else is meshing okay except for this one person who's never had to stand on her own before, and that's Farnese, of course, so right. Living yeah. life of an aristocrat. And
1: it's natural in a way because she's she's <laughs> just learning how to live for herself and, and having these growing pains while Serpico, Isidro, Guts, certainly, they've all had to live on their own and take care of totally. themselves or take care of others. Mm. So this is a yeah, tough time Serpico, for her. <laughs> Serpico
0: in particular, even if he hasn't been an outdoorsman, he has had he's learned how to think on his feet and you know roll with any scenario his entire life. So he's pretty well yeah. suited to it. You know, Sidro likewise he's been living on the road, so he's okay. But Farnese is the real problem here in terms of adaptability.
2: Right. What I like is that she we see her recognize that even though she's clumsy and powerless, she she she's a bird on the group, for the first time in her life, she's discovering who she truly is instead of pretending to be someone else or going along with what others expect of her. Uh, so I, I like that at the same time of her being weak and clumsy and we see all these mistakes she makes, she actually steals herself and says, no, I'm, I'm going to stick mm-hmm. with it because this is revealing to me who I am. And if I stick with it, I actually get better, which she does. So it's also a very important uh, hinging moment for her character where she decides she could, like and Isidro, uh, Serpico himself tries to encourage her, oh, shall we go back? And you you know he's hoping they will, but she's like, no, I'm going to stick with it. And I I think that's very important. As is the fact that she actually apologizes to Casca for what she tried to do to her in the past. It's again, it shows the start of growth and, you know, moving forward, Leaving the past behind, and trying to become yeah, someone. Yeah. And this
1: is such an important episode. Like you're saying for, for those of us who are following Farnese's, you know, uh, trajectory from this kind of obnoxious, annoying, uh, you know, BDSM <laughs> gal in, in previous <laughs> volumes to now this very meek and, and humble and kind of fearful a little bit character who is trying to find her way in this new world and, I've seen on the forum over the mm. years, people say, I just don't understand how Farnese went from this type of character to this type of character. And I feel like this episode helps to map that a little bit.
0: Well, I think yeah. my answer to that, whenever I, I see that often, is that she was never even really herself right. until like this episode, this past two episodes, really. She's been putting on a mask because she's so afraid of what the world will do to her, basically, or, or what her place in the world is. Right. Um, now mm-hmm. she's having to find what her footing really is as herself. And she says herself, she's discovering herself for the first time because she's never really been herself. She's been, she was slotted oh. into the role of the leader of the Holy Iron Chain Knights because of ceremony. And she was slotted into the role of, you know, rich daughter without a role in the whole family. So.
2: Well, I think if you, if we really go back to the beginning, she was like that as a child, she was his meek and weak child. And then, We don't get to see that, but it explains that because of who her father is and her family is, uh, she quickly was traumatized as a little girl and became this twisted, uh, let's say, preteen and 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 then teenager. And uh, when they just cast her off as a part of the Holy Seas, I just... Um, how to say cemented that you know she took we are shown that with the burnings she took refuge in that because it helped her solidify herself and later on it's shown that uh, it's depicted as her hiding down in that yeah. little tower you know and and then when the tower crumbles that whole fake identity fake confidence fake everything she had built really a whole fake persona is destroyed. And so that's what is revealed underneath is who she truly is. And that's, it's this fearful little girl and that's who she reverts to. So, I mean, if someone doesn't understand how she goes from one character to the other, I would have to say, just reread the story and especially the segments where we see her past because it's pretty clearly explained, you know, that it's a character who was weak, traumatized and tried to build an armor Around herself, or in this case, a tower, to protect her from that outside world she didn't understand and had no control over, and uh, and that that worked for a while. She was twisted and odd and miserable, uh, but eventually it was destroyed, and and that's when she decided to try to discover yeah, her true self. Yeah, I, I
1: agree. It is more apparent and more clear if you pay attention to the text. Pay attention to the little details. <laughs>
0: If you actually read the text, <laughs> I think it's a matter of I don't need I don't feel the need to litigate Farnese's character. We I feel like we talked a lot about it a lot in volume twenty two. But I think if a, re- a new reader comes to the series and he thinks that the truth of Farnese is her introduction, that would be the mistake. Thinking that this person that's obsessed with torture and fire is is who she really is, and that this sudden change of character is uh, trying to find a way of uh, integrating these two personalities. That's really not what's happening, though. I mean, I, I feel like hmm. that character that she's introduced is is a guise for her. It's like a, it's like a fake armor she put yeah. on herself yeah. so she could cope with the world. And it made her, it, it allowed her to basically escape into her own fears. And she's finally shedding that, or trying to shed that, in this new chapter of her life.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and you can tell even early on that she's She's disturbed. Mm-hmm. It's not like she takes real pleasure or anything of that. She she doesn't have that cold stare of somebody who's used to these things or whatever. She always got these eyes. You can tell she's you know almost in a trance when when she watches the burnings or stuff like that. So, it's something. It's something that makes her miserable. It's not her true self. I think Mira establishes that pretty
0: early on. There's this shot when she says, "I'm discovering myself," and. I really like it. It's it's a pretty obvious visual symbolism happening, but she's seeing just the tip of her reflection in the water. She can't quite see herself yet. It's a little bit obscured by the boulder. I just really like that Mira did that little visual symbolism there.
2: Yeah, Yeah. that's a great touch. Yeah,
0: indeed. And then we have the old man, the very informed old man. He must read the papers (laughs) every morning.
2: Well, he's a shepherd, so he travels between places and must meet wanderers. That's how he gets his info. Sure, sure.
0: Honestly, this guy kind of foretells the next six volumes or so, eight eight volumes uh, (laughs) or so of content. I really like this idea of Guts kind of lamenting that, you know, all they had fought for for Midland is basically vanishing in the midst of this new war that's happening. So he does feel a little bit of an attachment to, you know, that. But uh, in the the end, it's not his home, as he says. Yeah. I I don't know. Maybe that's how I've always read that. How do you guys read Guts' reaction here that he's... What do you think that's my reading? I
2: think he does he reflects on his past and because the the end of Midland would mean something to him but at the same time he's not a very sentimental guy and he like he says it's not it's not really his home. I, I don't think you know I've seen people say, oh well this means he's from another country. I'm not sure it necessarily even means that it's more that he doesn't feel specifically attached to one place in particular it's not like He's, you know, gods of Rivia or gods of Lumias or gods of whatever you want. He's just, he was born in a place he doesn't even know. He lived as a missionary, traveling continuously. He's fought probably for many different sides in many different battles. He doesn't feel attached to any particular place. But I think even though he uh, he denies it, he still feels something for uh, the destruction of what he fought for a few years with the Band of the Falcon to to achieve. So that doesn't leave him completely untouched.
1: The strong, free Midland that he remembers is like a remnant of his... It's attached to his feelings about the Band of the Falcon in general.
2: And especially at the time, what the Band of the Falcon means to him is uh, all the people he lost. It's not something... I mean, to God, as his point is the story, he doesn't know about the new band of the Falcon led by Griffiths and with his apostles, so that that doesn't have that ma- that kind of meaning to him yet, and he really thinking about his past and what it meant, and that it was all, like you said, Walter, maybe all for nothing. So it's um, yeah, it's got that kind of. Emotion yeah, I like guess that it's all
1: it. expressed in that in those two panels with the flags of the band of the Falcon you know, the banners, and then his expression again, which says a lot without saying anything. Yeah,
2: he's uh, kind of uh, reflecting on, yeah. on the past.
0: The last page is uh, trolls is the the text. But uh, in Japanese, it just says troll So it doesn't say plural. Those pluralities in Japanese are deviously identified. Oh. Uh, but uh, at the time, we really thought it was a singular troll, particularly because of the way this is shown here. Just one troll. Just, just, there's a troll in those mountains. So watch out. That
1: basically. one mountain troll. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I never knew that. I've only I've only known trolls as like a, a plural sure. entity in Berserk.
0: It just says Tororu, yeah, uh, which can mean one, can mean many uh, in Japanese. Tororu da yo. And because yeah, I mean, of the go. way
1: that it's shown, it could be huge. It could be man sized. You have no idea.
0: It's furry. Zod's furry. Yeah. Maybe it's his brother. Watch <laughs> out.
1: Zod's,
0: his dad. Zod's dad.
2: Zod's <laughs> dad. Well, I mean, looking at it like that, it's closer to wild than it would be to sure, Zod. Sure, sure.
0: Wow. Well, That's it. Um, that lead, that, honestly, that leads very well into volume 24, because volume 24 through 26 is pretty much troll territory. We go into Flora's mansion. Very excited about yeah. moving on the reboot of 24. Yeah which is one of those volumes that's very close to my heart.
2: Yeah, of course. Well, Volume 24 is a huge, it's a huge uh, volume for the series. So many things happen that are really key to the trajectory of the story. And I think it's interesting is that this little troll uh, anecdote, because at the time, people didn't know to what extent the story would, uh, or the world rather, would open up to new concepts, new creatures, uh you know magic mm-hmm. that kind of stuff so it's also it's also interesting that uh you get that one little seed and and when people were subjected to it they didn't immediately realize what this could mean for for the series and yeah obviously uh, volume 24 is uh i mean it's uh it's one of the most important part of the of the series to me
0: yeah same yeah. That's what we're going to cut it off for now, guys. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. And we'll be back later for our start of our volume 24 reread.
2: Woohoo! Bye-bye, everyone. Bye, guys.
0: The Skullcast is a production of Skullknight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Puela, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Puela has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly.
1: Thanks for listening.